Welcome to the Strange and Interesting Podcast, a show about folklore, the paranormal, urban legends, and pretty much anything else that I find strange and interesting. I am your host, Al. Giants. They exist in the mythology, folklore, and legends of many cultures across the world. We're used to seeing giants portrayed as savage monsters, and there is no shortage of stories where giants are seen as dangerous opponents. However, there are stories where they have been portrayed as intelligent and sometimes even friendly. A variety of landmarks have also been credited to giants. Northern Ireland is home to a series of basalt rock columns called the Giant's Causeway. On the other side of the North Channel, on the island of Staffa, there is a landmark made up of similar rock columns called Fingal's Cave. According to legend, this causeway was built by an Irish giant named Fion to facilitate a battle with a Scottish giant named Benandoner. Geoffrey of Monmouth, a cleric who lived during the 12th century, wrote in his book The History of the Kings of Britain that the materials used to construct Stonehenge were originally transported to Ireland by giants and later to Salisbury Plain by the wizard Merlin. In other parts of England, stones scattered across the landscape were believed to have gotten to their present location due to giants throwing large rocks at each other. Giants have also played a role in creation myths. I remember the first religious studies class I took in college. It was called Exploring Religion and was taught by three professors, two of which I would later take advanced classes with. One of these professors was a man named Dr. Wendell Charles Bean. He taught classes on a variety of subjects including Hinduism, Islam, the African-American religious experience, and religious symbolism. He had a huge impact in how I came to think about matters of religion and mythology. I remember in one class he talked about four common motifs seen in creation myths. One of these motifs was dismemberment of the primordial giant. In some creation accounts, the gods defeat a monster or giant, then use its body to create the world. We can see this in the Norse creation story of Voluspa, when the gods fashion the world from the body of the giant Ymir, and the Babylonian creation story of Enuma Elish, when the god Marduk creates the earth from the body of the chaos dragon Tiamat. But those are not the kind of giants we're going to be talking about today. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at legendary giant men from America. 
I already discussed one of these figures in my episode on Paul Bunyan, though he is not the only large man we see in American folklore. In fact, the phenomenon of giants in the Americas is not new. Stories about giants predate European contact. One example comes from the Pawtee. The oral traditions of these people tell of a tribe called the Site Cha that lived in Nevada's Lovelock Cave. This place was believed to have been inhabited as early as 1000 BCE, though humans may have used it as far back as 2500 BCE. According to tradition, this cave was once home to a hostile tribe that may have been giants and may have been cannibals depending on the source you consult. Archaeological excavations of the cave have turned up a variety of artifacts as well as several skeletons, one of which may have belonged to an individual who was over six feet tall in life. So not a true giant, but certainly tall for the time this person would have lived. Today we'll be taking a look at four other figures. Pecos Bill, Johnny Caw, Mike Fink, and John Henry. The first two are legendary figures, the third is based on a real individual, and the last one seems to be a combination of a real person as well as storytelling. Now I want to mention that Pecos Bill, Mike Fink, and John Henry were not always described as being giants in the traditional sense of the word but I thought it would be appropriate to discuss them in this episode. They are examples of the big men we see in folklore and legend. These figures are often pictured as people who are exceptionally tall or strong, have larger-than-life personas, and often performed impressive feats beyond the ability of a normal man. Before we continue... I would also like to note that many of the stories and deeds attributed to these American giants are fake lore as opposed to genuine folklore. Fake lore, as described in the Paul Bunyan episode, is a story that is told as if it is old, but in reality is much more recent than it claims to be. John Henry would be the exception, as his story has been passed around and went through a variety of changes based on the group of people who were telling the story. But as I said in the episode on Paul Bunyan, these stories are still interesting and I think they are worth talking about. The story of our first American giant, Pecos Bill, was first told in the Century magazine by Edward O'Reilly in 1917. The name Pecos Bill actually predates O'Reilly's work. Pecos Bill was the nickname of General William Shafter, who served in the U.S. Army from 1861 to 1901. The actual Pecos Bill 
does not appear to have had any inspiration on the fictional character aside from the name. Instead, it is believed that Pecos Bill was based on the characteristics that urban dwellers of the time associated with cowboys, such as strength, toughness, and courage. Like many classic folk heroes of the time, he was the subject of many tall tales written by a variety of authors. There are, of course, variations of the legend, but most agree that Pecos Bill was born in Texas during the 1830s or 40s. His family moved out of town while he was still a baby, and during the trip, he fell out of their wagon unnoticed. Bill was adopted by a family of coyotes, found by his brother several years later, and after some convincing, came to realize he was not a coyote. Pecos Bill was said to have had a horse named Widowmaker, though sometimes he rode a cougar. They say he used a rattlesnake named Shake as his lasso, ate dynamite, could lasso a twister, and wrestled a giant serpent called the Bear Lake Monster. He was credited with inventing the lasso, the branding iron, and cowboy songs to calm herds of cattle. And just like Paul Bunyan, he was credited with the formation of landmarks such as the Gulf of Mexico and the Rio Grande. He also had a girlfriend named Slew Foot Sue. They say she rode a catfish down the Rio Grande and was just as skilled as Pecos Bill was. They would go on to get married, but depending on the version of the story you consult, they might not have lived happily ever after. According to some accounts, she tried to ride Widowmaker before, during, or after the wedding. The horse was jealous of Bill's affections for the lady and bucked until Sue fell off. She landed on her bustle, which caused her to start bouncing uncontrollably. She may have ended up on the moon or bounced away to parts unknown, or Bill may have managed to rescue her. It all depends on which source you consult. There are a couple of accounts on how Pecos Bill died. In one version, he died after drinking a mixture of whiskey, fish hooks, and nitroglycerin. Another story tells of how he saw a man from Boston walk into a bar dressed as a cowboy with lizard skin boots, a brass belt buckle, a new pair of blue jeans, and a 10-gallon hat that was as clean as a whistle. And when Bill saw this city slicker pretending to be a cowboy, the spectacle caused him to laugh so hard, he laughed himself to death. O'Reilly claimed that these stories were told by cowboys of the Old West, though it was later determined by folklorist Richard Dorson that these stories were not as old as the author claimed they were. Not to be outdone, the state of Kansas has its own giant in the form of Johnny Caw. This character is a late addition to the various big man stories from America. He was created in 1955 by a Kansas State University professor named George Fillinger. 
The stories surrounding Johnny Caw were written to celebrate the centennial of the city of Manhattan, Kansas. Professor Fillinger helped raise money to build a statue of Johnny, which would end up being completed in 1966. The hope was that by creating a roadside attraction, the city could promote the legend and bring tourists to the area. Over the years, various authors have written additional stories about Johnny Caw. I wasn't able to locate any of Fillinger's original writings, so I'm not sure how much of the following is from the primary source and how much is the work of others. Many of the tales surrounding Johnny are what you would expect from a giant. It was said Johnny grew rapidly, and within a few minutes after being born, he was over six feet tall. In order to give their son enough space, his family moved west and crossed the Missouri River. Just like Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill, he was credited with creating various land formations. When his family needed to clear fields for farming, he would dig up the rocks and pile them out west, forming the Rocky Mountains. He helped Pecos Bill dig the Grand Canyon and then took the remaining soil back to Kansas to make the land more suitable for farming. He also dug the Kansas River Valley and had a huge scythe that he used to clear the land so his mother could always have a good view of the sunset. He also used this tool to cut the funnels off of tornadoes so he could make it rain and end droughts. It was even said that Johnny could tussle with the likes of Paul Bunyan. The lumberjack accidentally trampled Johnny's crops, so he rubbed the giant's face along the bed of the Mississippi River. The next character I'm going to be talking about is based on a real person, and that is Mike Fink. The real Mike Fink was born in Pennsylvania during either the 1770s or 1780s. Even as a youth, he was said to be an excellent marksman. Rather than settle down to the life of a farmer, he decided to enter the transport business. Mike found work as a navigator and piloted keelboats. These boats were propelled with oars or by pulling them along with ropes, which would have required a great deal of physical strength. This was certainly something Mike Fink could do. He stood six foot three inches tall and was very strong. Unfortunately, the rise of steamboats eliminated the need for keelboatsmen like himself, so he decided to become a hunter and trapper. This would lead to his death in 1823. Mike was among the first employees of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company and joined a group known as Ashley's Hundred. Near the end of his life, he was believed to have gotten in a drunken argument with a friend and, as a result, was challenged to shoot a mug of beer off of his head. Due to his drunkenness, he shot too low, killing his friend in the process. Whether this was truly an accident, though, is up for debate. 
as some accounts claim that Mike admitted to aiming too low and having no regrets to his actions. In any case, Mike was later found and shot dead by one of the friends of the man he killed using the dead man's gun. After his death, until about the time of the American Civil War, the legend of Mike Fink grew and stories of his life and deeds became the subject of many tall tales. It was said that Mike enjoyed playing practical jokes on people and would get angry if a person he just pranked was not amused. Mike claimed he could outrun, outshoot, and outfight any man in the country. One story states that there was a tradition where men would gather at a local tavern to engage in a brawl, and the last man standing would be awarded with a red feather as a symbol of his strength. Mike Fink won so many of these brawls that his hat was covered with red feathers. It was also said he could drink a gallon of whiskey and still be able to shoot the tail off of a pig at 90 paces. He was also said to be able to ride a moose, wrestle an alligator, and drown a wolf with his bare hands. His story started to decline in popularity after the war and people began to lose interest in tales about someone who was essentially a drunken bully. Some of the later stories pictured him as a scoundrel who eventually got his comeuppance. To some extent, though, we can see Mike Fink as a victim of labor in the face of technology. While technology has the potential to make some jobs safer and more productive, it also has the potential to put people out of work. The same might be said of the last person we're going to be talking about today, and that is John Henry. According to folklore, John Henry was a steel-driving man who worked on the construction of railroad tunnels. These men had a difficult and dangerous job, much like the lumberjacks we talked about in the Paul Bunyan episode. A steel driver worked with a person called a shaker. The shaker would hold a drill against a rock face while the driver hit it as hard as he could with a heavy hammer. The shaker would turn and roll the drill to let debris fall out and make the hole wider. When the hole was deep enough, it was packed with explosives. Of course, there was a risk of the driver missing his mark and hitting the person holding the drill. Cavens were common, especially when digging through shale and softer rock. The conditions they labored under put the workers at risk of silicosis, a lung disease caused by inhaling silica dust. The unpredictability of explosives back then further added to the danger, as the person who lit the fuse would need to make sure he had enough time to escape the tunnel before the explosive went off. If the explosive did not go off as planned, he would need to go back in and figure out why and if the reason was due to a delay with the ignition, 
he risked being killed by the explosion. The story of John Henry states that a man with a steam-powered drill showed up on the worksite and claimed that his machine would be faster and more effective than any man could hope to be. John Henry tells his captain he can prove the steam drill's inventor wrong and asks to put his skills against the machine. There are several versions of the ballad, but all end the same. One version of the song goes as follows. John Henry said to his captain, A man is nothing but a man, but before I let your steam drill beat me down, I die with a hammer in my hand. Lord, Lord, I die with a hammer in my hand. The man then invented the steam drill. He figured he was mighty high and fine, but John Henry sunk the steel down 14 feet while the steam drill only made nine. Lord, Lord, the steam drill only made nine. John Henry hammered on the right-hand side. The steam drill kept driving on the left. John Henry beat that steam drill down, but he hammered his poor heart to death. Lord, Lord, he hammered his poor heart to death. There is debate on whether the Ballad of John Henry is based on a real person and a real event, or just a tale told by railway workers. Naturally, there have been attempts to find a location where John Henry's tale could have originated, and there are two tunnels that seem to be likely locations. The first is the Great Bend Tunnel near Talcott, West Virginia. This tunnel has also been called the Big Bend Tunnel. When I was writing the script for this episode, I saw it referred to by both names, but the National Park Service website calls it the Great Bend Tunnel, so that is how I will refer to it here. The Great Bend Tunnel was built between 1870 and 1872 by the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. Social anthropologist Guy Johnson investigated the John Henry story in the 1920s. He interviewed several men who would have been teenagers around the time the tunnel was built. In 1927, he spoke with a man who claimed to have worked alongside John Henry. The following account comes from the Modesto Bee and News Herald, dated February 22, 1930. This man, known as Neil Miller, told me in plain words how he had come to the tunnel with his father at 17, how he carried water and drills for the steel drivers, and how he saw John Henry every day, and finally, all about the contest between John Henry and the steam drill. When the agent for the steam drill company brought the drill here, said Mr. Miller, John Henry wanted to drive against it. He took a lot of pride in his work, and he hated to see a machine take the work of men like him. Well, they decided to hold a test to get an idea of how practical the steam drill was. 
The test went on all day and part of the next day. John Henry won. He wouldn't rest enough, and he overdid. He took sick and died soon after that. Mr. Miller described the steam drill in detail. I made a sketch of it, and later, when I looked up pictures of their early steam drills, I found his description correct. I asked people about Mr. Miller's reputation, and they all said, If Neil Miller said anything happened, it happened. So it seems Neil Miller was a reliable witness and had a a trustworthy reputation. But Johnson contacted a representative from the railway company asking for clarification. He was told that documentation from that time was destroyed in a fire, but that no steam drills were used in the construction of that tunnel. The tunnel opened in 1872 and was shut down in 1974. Even though the Great Bend Tunnel's construction is based on speculation and eyewitness accounts that were given decades after the events took place, the site is still associated with the legend and is now known as John Henry Historical Park. Scott Reynolds Nelson, an associate history professor at William and Mary College, published a book in 2006 called Steel Driving Man, John Henry, the Untold Story of an American Legend. He argues that the legend is more likely connected to the Lewis Tunnel located in Alhagany County, Virginia. Nelson was researching hammer songs, which were songs sung by work crews in order to keep rhythm, because for some of these heavy labor tasks they did, it was very important that the team was working together at the same time, and these stories helped keep that rhythm to make sure they were working together. He remembered a verse from one of the versions of the song that mentions John Henry was buried in sand at a White House where locomotives roared. He realized that the Virginia Penitentiary was painted white at the time and is near a railroad. In 1992, a digging crew unearthed 200 skeletons in unmarked graves. Some of these graves consisted of several skeletons grouped together, while others were just a few bones in a small box. After some research, he found out there was a 19-year-old African-American prisoner at the penitentiary named John William Henry. He was convicted of theft and sentenced to 10 years in prison. The warden believed that since many of the men were arrested for minor crimes, it would be better to lease them out as laborers instead of having them stay in prison all day. However, he would later come to oppose the practice of convict leasing. Nelson was also able to locate some of the Chesapeake and Ohio railroad records that were believed to be lost. These records indicated that steam drills 
were used alongside convict labor in the construction of the Lewis Tunnel. One of the reasons the railroad company wanted to use convict labor was because after the explosives went off, the air in the tunnel would be filled with silica dust. Miners were well aware of the danger this dust posed and would refuse to re-enter the tunnel until it finally settled. Since the company was on a tight schedule, they needed people they could order to go in before it was safe to do so, and convict laborers did not have the luxury of being able to refuse an order. The Virginia Museum of History and Culture website has a video where Professor Nelson goes into more detail on the legend of John Henry and how the song made its way through various work crews of later years. It is interesting to note that a story of beating a steam drill would become more impressive of a feat as time progressed. If we go back to the time when the John Henry story was said to have taken place, we find that steam drills in the 1870s were actually not very efficient and prone to malfunctioning. The crew would often have to stop working and clear out debris in order to get the drill to work again. Thus, a story of a driver and a shaker outperforming a steam drill would not be considered an exceptional feat at that time. But, by the 1920s, technology had improved and drilling machines could easily outpace human workers. If a person from this era was not familiar with how inefficient early steam drills really were, then in his mind, a tale of a man beating one of these machines would seem much more extraordinary. Nelson's research indicated that records of John William Henry end in 1873. Rather than dying gloriously after beating a steam drill in an epic battle of man versus machine, it is more likely he died of silicosis from inhaling dust and rock particles, just like hundreds of other men who worked on these tunnels. So while there was a man named John Henry back then who did work on constructing these tunnels, Unfortunately, he would not have accomplished the deeds from folklore that we associate with the name John Henry. This does bring up an interesting question, and that is, why are these stories of American giants so popular? Maybe we just like the idea of people and heroes with larger-than-life deeds and personas so we can aspire to be like them someday. In the case of figures like Paul Bunyan, Johnny Caw, and Pecos Bill, we can see a bit of one-upsmanship, as different people from different regions try to create a character that is bigger, stronger, and tougher than those of their neighbors. When it comes to John Henry, I think that story is more relatable 
and speaks to us on a more personal level. No doubt many people have had jobs where management was more concerned with profits than their employees. Granted, few of us have probably had jobs on the same danger level as that of building tunnels, but we still may have felt that management saw us not as humans, but cogs in a machine to be used and replaced as needed. But to end this episode on a positive note, the deeds of the John Henry from folklore are relatable perhaps because they are not the stuff of tall tales or some mythological hero that mere mortals like us can never hope to accomplish. He was a hard-working man just trying to do his job. And perhaps an even more important lesson from his story is not to work yourself to the point where you're going to die from exhaustion. None of us will ever be able to build a mountain range, dig a canyon, or lasso a tornado, but all of us can certainly take pride in a job well done. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stay strange and stay interesting. You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at poigamestudio.com. Follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Look us up on Facebook and email us at poigamestudio at gmail.com.